Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Four-time Grammy Award winner Isabel Leonard is currently one of opera's most sought-after voices, She earned her illustrious reputation because of her vocal beauty, charming stage presence, and the fact that she never loses sight of her primary goal as a performer. Her job is to heighten a person's life in that moment, give them peace or to allow them to cry or to bring them joy and laughter. If I'm going to open my mouth in front of an audience of thousands, like I better have something to say. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. One of the great things about being a trumpet player who works for the opera is that every once in a while, you have a really short night because if it's written in the music, you could be the guy that comes in and just plays the little offstage trumpet solo that announces the prince or whatever, and then you go home. Mm -hmm. Well, a few months back, I had just such an occasion where I I came in to play um, Massenet's Cinderella, which you sang the title role of. I'm backstage, I play the fanfare, and then I was almost trampled (laughs) by by you. You said, I'm so sorry, as you are whisked away into this quick costume change. In those moments, how do you stay focused when there's absolute bedlam right (laughs) backstage? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah, right. That's, but that's, that's like part of what we do, right? I mean, because it's pretty much always bedlam (laughs) offstage. I would say that there is probably 50% of the time something like that is going on. Like just to be kind of relaxed and waiting to go on to your next cue is not always the way it is. For me, at least, what I do is I think of, whatever transitions I have off stage, particularly if they are fast or, you know, there's just not a lot of time to maybe think about what's coming next. I try to put in my mind that transition is part of the performance. So I sort of build in like a process 
So it's not just sort of left to being like a haphazard moment, even if it's a quick change or anything like that. Obviously, those are even more structured. I always think it's like changing the tires on a Formula One car when they go into the pit stop. It is a highly choreographed and practiced event, just as practiced as the performances. So they go smoothly and nothing gets messed up because you don't have time. <laughs> and I think to myself, okay, I stay quiet vocally. I keep my breathing like low and deep, especially I have to run like that. I had to like run off the stage, run down the stairs, and then back essentially to like running to middle stage, except under the set, right under the stage. And I just keep myself at a pace that I know, yes, my heart rate's going to accelerate a little bit, but it's not going to be so high that in the 30 seconds I have to change, it won't come down to a manageable heart rate that I can then sing long legato lines from. When you ran by me, this was like someone running for a cat. This was not cool, <laughs> comma, collected at all. Yeah. How do you quickly regain your composure to go back out there and perform? Um, I would say, like in that particular case, because I stand on this hydraulic lift, right? So I, we would do the change away from the hydraulic lift. The crew then drops essentially like a little drawbridge so that I can step onto the lift. I get on the lift. I turn around. Everybody kind of gives me a thumbs up. And they're like, you good? Good. Those are those moments where I just go, okay, back in the show now. Like, whatever it is that I have to, to do, do next. And when you are back in it, what does it feel like to lose yourself in a character but still have to execute this vocal technique, watch the conductor, enunciate the language, remember the stage direction? How do you do all that at once? Oh, I mean, gosh, I, at this point, you know, those things are almost second nature now, right? You practice so many times to do something that seems small in the grand scheme of things, but a million of those small things put together makes up the whole performance. So that's, I guess, that's what we're doing, right? We, we practice and train and train and train and train so that none of these things feel like particularly large lifts over the course of the night. But as far as falling into a character, that's the best part of it, you know? Getting into the shoes of a character where you can kind of lose yourself a little bit is so much fun <laughs> and usually makes the whole evening easier and more enjoyable. You know, because some characters and roles can be more challenging than others for a variety of different reasons. Could be vocally, could be the character, could be the staging. <laughs> you know, you can have a director that likes to have you running up and down stairs <laughs> the whole time. Right. You know, and so there's different challenges that we are encountered with. Uh, production to production. So it's fun to to build in your stamina to whatever that is. These skills that you so nonchalantly toss off, <laughs> do you ever find that they're useful in other parts of your life? <laughs> that is such a good question. I mean, I can be really loud if I need to, <laughs> right? I don't know. I mean, I, I love to dance. I love to move. I suppose that's effective when you're trying to make it through the streets of New York. What we do is like our lifeblood, you know, as much as sometimes we'd like to admit that that were not the case, it is very much the case. And so I would say in a way, rather than our art is useful in our day-to-day -day life, we're always trying to find ways how our day-to-day -day life can be useful to our art so that it doesn't pull us in opposite directions or it doesn't tax us in a way that affects us negatively when we have to do our job because it's such a specialized thing that we have to do that... You know, we feel the tiny little grain of sand in our voice when our voices are a little bit off that a person who doesn't sing for a living wouldn't, you know, probably even notice. You know, I make a conscious effort not to be in a large, uh, rather in a loud restaurant or bar 
pretty much ever, but for sure when I'm performing. Right. So. Do you remember the first time you sang and it made an impact on someone? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, I was a teenager, you know, I was in grade school and we did our musicals and things like that. And I had whatever solo I had and, you know, it's like your mother and your, your, your mother's friends, right? When they all come up to you and they go, wow, that was really touching. Like, and they always look, you know, when you're a young person and you do these things, you know that there's something authentic about it when they look surprised. <laughs> They're sort of surprised by the fact that they had, I guess, some sort of an experience beyond what they had expected. Uh, I mean, look, not to say that I was some incredible person singing as a 14-year-old. Um, I was, you know, just a musical person. But, um, but I, you know, there, there are definitely wonderful moments when people come up to a performer, any performer, and say, gosh, that really... That really touched me today, you know, or that really resonated with me today. Could be something you're doing, could be just the coincidence of maybe perhaps wherever they are in their moment of life listening to you and something that you've done or the piece has connected to them in a way that was important for that moment, you know, and in a way you both happen to be givers and recipients of that connection in time. So most people will never experience what it's like to command an audience of thousands using only your unamplified <laughs> voice. Can you describe what it's like to be able to do that? Uh, it is, um, it's unusual. That is for sure. There is, I've always felt that there uh, was such a gigantic responsibility that came with it. Like, if I'm going to open my mouth in front of an audience of thousands... Like, I better have something to say. Like, they better feel something. Not that it's, it's not like aggressive like that. Like, you better feel something. But it's, it's, it's like, you know, I'm here to entertain, which is I've, I firmly believe, you know, we get very hoity-toity in the classical music world, right? But I believe we are entertainers. We are here to entertain and to bring experience and like maybe a cathartic experience to the audience that perhaps they've never experienced before. Uh, like that's our job. Our job is to sort of heighten a person's life in that moment or to allow them to cry or to bring them joy and laughter and all from a nice, hopefully comfortable seat that they have in the audience where they can enjoy that and they can maybe forget for a moment if they need to whatever else is going on in their lives. Right? They can experience something out of the ordinary. So for me, performing, it should be joyous for me because otherwise it is a long night and hopefully be slightly different every time. Not that it has to be noticeably different from the outside, but for me, it's like a living, breathing creature. It has a life of its own and that's what keeps it fresh. So for somebody who doesn't do that, which was actually your question, I don't know. I think that even in a smaller capacity, speaking to another person during your day is the same thing. It's just you have a smaller audience. Well, I appreciate your humility, but it's actually nothing like that. It's, it's a lot more. I mean, you're doing it for 4,000 people. Most people get nervous giving a toast at a dinner party. Sure. For whatever reason, we feel the more people that are watching, the higher the stakes. And, it's, and I understand that thought. Maybe there's validity in that. 
But, you know, I guess at the same time, if you're worried about all the thousands of people there liking you, you run the risk of diluting your message because you're trying to be accepted by 4,000 people rather than being clear with your message. And there are always going to be people that don't agree, but there are going to be people that do. You can't make the people that don't like you like you. So <laughs> you just have to kind of be happy with that and understand that, you know, you might not be everybody's cup of tea. The singer culture is is really difficult, honestly. It is fraught with this tension of about of being perfect all the time. And I would say that the brass players suffer a little bit of the same uh stress, you know, I it's funny, I dated a I dated a trumpet player all through college. So I, I kind of like understood the stress that the brass players had all, all times, right? Because you might sit there all night long, your instrument might get cold, and then you have to play this one passage and you're just like, please don't crack on the high note. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> right? And that's a lot of stress. And in a way, we basically suffer the same injustices throughout a show. You know, we could be singing all night or we could be quiet all night and then have one note that everybody's counting on, you know. And if that note isn't this glorious, stunning, operatic note, everybody's like, eh. Where do nerves fit into your performance? Do, do you get nervous when you sing? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. For me, nerves are for the most part, generally related to preparation. If I am feeling slightly underprepared, I will definitely be more nervous. Um, for pieces that I know really well, less so, right? Um, I can tell you right now for the opening of Ariadne, I was nervous. German is not a language I've been singing for the last 16 years. And I am too good at knowing what I can do well and what I don't do well or what I haven't been practicing. And so I know that even though this is what I do for a living and I am good at it and I know languages, you know, I speak French and Spanish, like the romance languages, lockdown, got it. But German is just not something I do. So I have to spend a lot more time and effort making sure that I obviously understand everything and pronounce it correctly and try to be as authentic as possible. I don't like faking it. It is not where my voice feels the most comfortable either. So for me to do a piece in German where everybody is talking in German, not to mention super fast German, it is it can be really nerve-wracking because I feel, even though I'm doing my job and I do understand what's going on, you know, on stage, there are still little bits here and there where I'm like, I don't quite remember what that word means, you know, in terms of what I'm listening to to other people. And for me, I will literally sit there and be like, that's it, I'm a fraud, I should leave, <laughs> <laughs> like, I should do something else, you know. So I was really nervous during the day. I was jittery, like shaky jittery. So I had to, I had to like, you know, take some deep breaths and, and be like, but you're okay, Isabel. Like, you're here for a reason. <laughs> so. Well, it was amazing. You didn't seem nervous at all. No. You seemed pretty German to me. But it's not <laughs> like your job gets any easier when the role is in English. Right. Nico Muley's opera, Marnie, for example, not only is it a hugely difficult role, mm -hmm. but you're doing it while you're being tossed from a horse and you're catapulted <laughs> up in the air being handled in slow motion while you're singing an aria. Have you ever gotten a stage direction that you were like, um, no, that's not going to work? <laughs> I'm trying to think now. I'm, I'm one of those crazy people that like, of course, I'm like, sure, I'll try it once. Let's see what happens. I would always say that I've always tried to say, okay, let's, let's try and see. There's definitely been probably moments in which I've said, well, maybe could we try it this way? Does that still 
tell the story you're looking for, you know, with the director or, you know, this is a really uncomfortable position. Can we try something else? <laughs> and I would imagine even without any of that, just standing in front of an audience can be incredibly uncomfortable, especially if you're thinking about the audience's expectations of a particular role that has been sung for centuries by the best singers on the planet. Do you ever feel judged by people's expectations and the ideal performance that they already have in their head? Unfortunately, yes, all the time. I mean, that's, again, part of this weird culture that we live in in the classical music world because you know, I always say it's like akin to being like a Shakespearean actor. So, you know, they're, you're doing the same piece over and over and over again. And many people before you have done that piece over and over and over again. So it is easy to compare one person to the other because people get used to seeing one thing. It happens with athletes too, though. You know, if you think about like the great boxers or basketball players, you know, oh, he's like a, you know, a young blah, 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 or she's like a young so-and-so, you know, and that's exactly the same language that is used with us. Oh, she's like a, she's like a young flicker here. Oh, there's a tone of blah, blah, blah there. And we all kind of want to yell, be like, I have a different thumbprint. Thanks. I'm actually all me. <laughs> but at the same time, we learn by imitation. So much of our early training came from imitation in the first place. You know, play like your teacher, do what your teacher says, or listen to so-and-so and her legato. You know, get inspired by all these people that did it before you. So it's sort of an inevitability. Um, it can be frustrating sometimes, I think, especially as a more established singer, perhaps, when you're just sort of like, could, could you just be like, hey, look, it sounds like Isabel, because it's Isabel. <laughs> but I would say at this point, you know, it doesn't bother me, you know, and, and, and I get it probably less now than I did when I was a young singer, because I also probably am establishing more and more, as one does, a tone of their own. And, and that happens over time. And that's a natural progression, too, for the voice. What was that process like in developing your own voice? Was there a particular moment where you said, like, oh, there it is. That's, that's my voice. Mm, no, I always think, like, there's some days where I go, oh, there it is. And then some days, like, I don't know where it went today. It's not my voice. I don't know what's happening. It's on vacation. <laughs> like, it doesn't want to warm. Like, it's, I find for me, it's healthy to kind of talk about my voice as some, like, other inanimate object that, like, has a life of its own. <laughs> because it can sometimes be incredibly frustrating. You can wake up one morning feeling great, and then you go to sing, and your voice is basically not cooperating. You know, it's just like, no, no, actually tired and dehydrated today, so... No, thanks. <laughs> um, I don't know. I listened to I listened to a lot of Renata Tebaldi when I was growing up. Uh, I happen to just love, I love her singing and I loved her singing. I don't know if I ever tried to emulate a singer, perhaps, in the way that they sang. I think for me, at least what I heard in the singers that I love listening to is musicality, the turn of a phrase, the way people use language. I mean, I also grew up listening to Frank Sinatra and to Ella Fitzgerald, who I will forever listen to first and foremost before I listen to any opera recording. Because I think the way Ella and Frank turn their phrases and say words and express themselves is absolutely bar none the best. <laughs> and, and if anything, they are inspirations to me when I sing something in opera. There are a lot of different influences and they're not all operatic. <laughs> You went to the Juilliard School, which can be a very competitive atmosphere. Did that environment inspire or paralyze you? Um, 
You know, we were lucky, actually. Our class, our particular class of incoming freshman singers, we were all quite different from one another. So at least in the beginning, we didn't feel this sort of nasty, cutthroat competition between each other, which is where it would have been had the class been different. We were pretty supportive of each other, actually, to be honest. So I, I remember there being a feeling of not really competition with other singers so much as like a race where everybody's running in the same direction, but it wasn't about like, you know, is somebody better than you or not? It was just like, we're all trying to get to the, to the end of this race quickly and see what happens. That's how I've also just, for my particular self, deal with these kinds of things. Because if I'm standing there and I spend most of my time concerning myself with how somebody else is singing, I'm not spending any time on myself, which is the only way one gets better as a performer. Yeah is if you spend time on yourself. The rest is kind of a waste of time, in my opinion. So. Right. Well, that's certainly a healthy attitude towards competing, and competitions are the way into a career for many. You won the Richard Tucker Award in 2013. Did this jumpstart your career? No. I mean, I was lucky that when I got the Richard Tucker Award, I was already working, and I was already working at the Met. So I was I was very lucky. I mean, I started working really young. You know, I debuted really young at the Met. That mm-hmm. was a, a very unusual, not normal kind of thing to do, but it was my path. Um, And so I never really like warmed up to it, so to speak. It was like, here you go, get on stage. Now you have an aria all by yourself. Good luck, have fun. The, The Tucker Award was a wonderful affirmation of what was already happening. And then it definitely, um, it was like joining a family also of wonderful singers that had already received the award. That's sort of what those awards feel like. It's like you're kind of like joining like a club, you know. And that's just nice. It's a nice It's a nice feeling to have recognition. I've had the great pleasure of hearing you sing contemporary opera when the composer actually writes the role with you in mind. Does that add another level of pressure to performing or does it make it easier or more personal in some way? Uh, for me, I find it like a little terrifying <laughs> because because there's the person who has created this baby, right? Or like this, this uh, entity has the way they hear it in their mind. Like no matter what they say, right? When they've been composing it, they're going to be hearing it in a certain way, right? Because they've been living it with it for so much longer than you have. Um, so talk about a great responsibility. And and sometimes, of course, they're like, no, we really want your take on it, your voice in it. So, you know, we're going to keep on exploring and, and tell me what you think as you're singing it. And, and I mean, all of the contemporary composers that I've worked with thus far have been really wonderful about that. You know, you can talk to them and say, yeah, you know, this is feeling a little awkward, this particular transition because of where it sits in my voice. Can we... Can we talk about that? <laughs> you know, can we look at it and try something new? Or, and I'll, sometimes they'll say yes. Sometimes they'll say, "Well, mm, no," <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and and that's okay. That's all right. You know, nothing. Not everything that you sing in Strauss or Mozart feels great, right? So, it is part of the stretching and the challenges of doing what we do. Another aspect of what you do so well is your acting abilities. I mean. You've portrayed roles spanning centuries and often sing pants roles where you have to play a young boy or a grown man. Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy this aspect of what you do? Um, I love getting into these characters and finding 
how to express their feelings genuinely. And the truth is, there are ranges of human emotions. And I would say that, for the most part, a lot of us have experienced quite a number of them already. So you can generally find a way in. You can find a parallel. Of course, is it easy for me to know what a 13 or 14-year-old hormonal teenage boy feels like at every moment? No. But can I tap into what it feels like to be a hormonal person or to have that excited feeling when you're about to meet somebody that you have a crush on? Do we all know those feelings? Yeah. So it's sort of finding the, the inroads. And you do that really well in the role that you have to sing tomorrow night in Strauss's Ariadne of Naxos. And I don't know if you remember, but when we were rehearsing it, the conductor is taking a really fast tempo yeah. and it completely fell apart. <laughs> like everything stopped. And at that point, you were sitting right on the lip of the stage just over the orchestra and I could see your arched eyebrow as the conductor is <laughs> yelling at everybody. You just took a breath, you waited, listened, and then you executed and never went into that opera diva flipping out thing. Do you wait till you're in your dressing room alone to start trashing the place? <laughs> um, oh, no, I would say that my inner monologue is probably going crazy at that moment in time, like anyone's would. And then I allow the next part of the conversation to be like, well, what part of this is important to you? You know, is this worth a fight? You know, it had nothing to do with me, what was going on, really. Right. You know, it was just, we were all trying to put this piece together. And if I am not making sure that I am doing my job to the best of my ability, that's on me. Now, granted, I always have like an arsenal of things in my mind in those moments of like, what will I say if anything were to come to me directly in this moment of tension? Because if you're not prepared, that's when people make mistakes, right? That's when things are said that probably shouldn't be said. Um, and and then I uh, remind myself again, it's just opera. Like, we're wearing tights on stage. It's entertainment. We're here to entertain the audience. Like, if we're fighting on stage about something, go home. That's <laughs> not worth it. This is just opera, so chill out. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw all of those emotions in, in one arched <laughs> eyebrow of yours. You're uh, all uh, thinking I'm super subtle. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Krause Trumpet and go to our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com, for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.